Welcome to Devotions in the Deep End. I'm Cam Buchanan from Mount Gambier, Australia, and this is my quest to teach the whole New Testament as deeply and helpfully as I can. So grab your Bible and a beverage of choice, and let's take a few intentional minutes together in the Deep End. Welcome back to Devotions in the Deep End. Our passage for this episode is Matthew chapter 23, verses 16 to 24. In a similar approach to last time, we're going to divide this passage in half. Here's the first bit. Woe to you, blind guides! You say, if anyone swears by the temple, it means nothing. But anyone who swears by the gold of the temple is bound by that oath. You blind fools! Which is greater, the gold or the temple that makes the gold sacred? You also say, if anyone swears by the altar, it means nothing, but anyone who swears by the gift on the altar is bound by that oath. You blind men, which is greater, the gift or the altar that makes the gift sacred? Therefore, anyone who swears by the altar swears by it and everything on it, and anyone who swears by the temple swears by it and by the one who dwells in it, and anyone who swears by heaven swears by God's throne and by the one who sits on it. Jesus has covered the idea of how to make an oath way back on the Sermon on the Mount, and you can check that out in episode 22. Back then, he simply made the point that your yeses and noes should mean something tangible, without the need to make big public announcements and over-the-top promises. Now he goes into some specifics, which give extra weight to some of the things previously said. Jesus has been making the point that the scribes and Pharisees were prescribing tough rules that they themselves found ways to wriggle out of. This is one of those wriggles, a solemn binding statement such as an oath and a series of technicalities to get out of them if need be. As has been pointed out in much earlier episodes, we know that there were both liberals and conservatives among the Sanhedrin, with names such as rabbis Hillel and Shammai taking prominence as key voices one way or the other. These names and others naturally weighed in on this matter too. Unsurprisingly, the conservative school of thought was that any promise one made was completely binding, while the liberal outlook conjured up technicalities to make promises legally and morally breakable. Going by Jesus' woes, it appears human nature had prevailed among the religious teachers, with the liberal option having the most gravitational pull. The hypocrisy in play is that the Pharisees wanted the best of both worlds. They wanted the oohs and ahs of the crowd when they made public spectacles out of their vows. But they also wanted to know that they could get out of their lofty vows when the spotlight was turned off. We've seen an example of this back in episode 50, where Jesus calls out the religious approach to Corbin. By all means, go back and have a listen when you get a chance. When it came to financial matters and the religion opposing Jesus, technicalities were clearly the order of the day. They would go to great and even unholy lengths to hold on to what was theirs. This particular woe points out a worldly outlook and even a disregard for the sacred. The technicalities stated that one could break a vow made in the name of the temple or the altar in the temple, the sacred things, the place where God was, the place where devotion and faith is expressed in earnest. But the contents were off limits? The gold in the treasury, the gifts being brought to God. Make a vow in the name of the commodities, and you can back out if you need to. Never mind the fact that the big things made the little things sacred. The fact that the gold was in the temple made it sacred by default. The offering on the altar, something hopefully only accepted because it was without blemish, was made holy by the altar it sat on. 
Friend, that is idolatry, dressed up in a religious robe. And the Pharisees were guilty of divided and dishonest hearts because of their idols of money and gold. Imagine the heart of a person who needed to look that good before men, making, for example, a grand promise in the name of the temple of Yahweh, but knowing when it came down to it, you could revoke it just as quickly. Because you really should have made it in the name of the gold inside it for the vow to be irrevocable. Jesus has no time for this. Or the next issue too. Let's keep reading. Woe to you, teachers of the law and Pharisees, you hypocrites. You give a tenth of your spices, mint, dill and cumin. But you have neglected the more important matters of the law, justice, mercy and faithfulness. You should have practiced the latter without neglecting the former. You blind guides, you strain out a gnat, but swallow a camel. Again, we see some things being done technically right. A sense of methodical law-keeping in play. But the technicalities were again stripping something away from the power of their faith. To their credit, they were committed to their tithe, an act in keeping with the Mosaic law. But clearly to an extreme degree. To deal out a tenth of their spices would have been a meticulous effort. They would either count out their seeds and take loads of time to do so, one seed for God, nine seeds for me, or they would carefully weigh their produce out to the milligram to ensure they gave their tenth share as prescribed. Some scholars negatively say that they went to the prescribed line and nothing more. And I admit I might gravitate to that thinking a little bit here as well. I have at times defined legalism as the sinful mindset of doing just enough, with examples like this contributing to this definition. They were also really careful about what they put into themselves, ensuring they didn't partake in any unclean thing. And again, this is to an extreme level. Straining a gnat was exactly how it sounds. When you stored wine or even water, these minuscule insects would breed in the skin containers being used. Because they were more than four-legged creatures, they were deemed in the law of Moses to be unclean. So they would strain their wine through clean cloth many times over before drinking it, just in case one unclean gnat got into their system and they'd suddenly fall short in God's sight. When you think about this, you can see how much of a burden this was on the people. But anyone knowing the heart of God could clearly see that this was not a burden he intended us to carry. Taking a handful of cockroaches from the back alley where the trash can was and eating them for dinner would probably do harm because of diseases and stuff like that. But swallowing a minuscule insect by accident and potentially being barred from synagogue for a week as a result? This was not the spirit of the law. So they were really, really good at following the rules, and they were diligent with the littlest of things pertaining to the law. But in their micro self-management, they were committing camel-sized sins, and even becoming defiled by those things. Jesus calls out, yet again, their refusal to show mercy, justice, and faithfulness. They knew right and wrong in a purely written and prescribed way, and as a result followed the rules without developing a spirit-led moral compass. This stripped away their capacity to express their faith in the way God wanted, beginning with the ability to demonstrate proper justice. They would no longer be moved by an unjust situation and actively seek to make it right. This is the ultimate endpoint of letter of the law living rather than spirit of the law living. In their minds, they didn't worship a merciful God, but one who put rules in place to keep him happy. This is very much a pagan outlook, not at all what God wanted out of his covenant people. As a result, they couldn't show mercy either. 
Their religious mindset had quashed out the capacity for mercy in its expression. It was quick to point out prescribed wrong, quick to point to a prescribed judgment call and a punitive action. It was unable to display empathy. It couldn't journey with someone when they fell into sin and needed a way out. And faithfulness, or the lifestyle of faith. Absolute trust in God's goodness, even when they weren't good enough. Well, no, they had to get everything right, because they'd only be ready for their version of the kingdom of God when they'd done enough to show themselves to be righteous. They were placing their trust entirely on what they were doing. They had no space for trust in what God could do for them. They were stuck in the details and technicalities, while the big things of justice, mercy and faith were being ignored. Micah 6.8 tells us what the Lord is calling for in His people. To act justly, not to be a rule follower or an enforcer, but an agent of justice with an ingrained, spirit-led sense of right and wrong, being compelled to do right and put things right. Not because it's prescribed, but because it's just what spirit-led disciples do. To be a lover of mercy. To love without condition. Action that frees those who can't speak for themselves. Drawn from the knowledge that we only draw breath because of this trait being in the Saviour we imitate. To walk humbly with your God. To know who we are in His presence. In our humanness, we'll never stack up because sin is that serious. But in Christ, through mercy, through the cross, through God's imputed righteousness, we know that we can freely come before Him. Humility is the right attitude of who we are, and realizing we're right before God because of what He did and not what we did is what a disciple understands, while a Pharisee does not. Let's reflect on these now. A Pharisee makes religion a series of technicalities, ones that will allow you to do just enough. Ones that will give you technical outs to cover for your shortcomings and still save face. It is so self-reliant that grace has no expression, and its closely related expressions of mercy, justice, and faithfulness can no longer be found. Religion can get to the point where these are no longer experienced, so they'll never be expressed in response. In this lifeless state, you'll strain gnats thinking all is well, but you end up swallowing bigger sins. It's interesting that Jesus actually commends the attitude to the little things, but he calls disciples to bring that same A-game to the big things too. The big things in Jesus' mind are not what is seen on the outside, but what is going on in our heart. The rules and law is outward. Mercy and faith and justice are inward. Just because we don't see them on the surface doesn't mean we can ignore them. In fact, a genuine, spirit-led disciple knows that the opposite is true. Thanks for tuning in. To learn more about this podcast and other ministries I'm involved in, go to my new website, www.ministryinthedeepend.com.au. You can also find me on Facebook, Instagram, and even YouTube. So please like, follow, subscribe, connect, and comment wherever you can. I look forward to catching up next time. See you then.